والصلاه والسلام على رسول الكريم وعلى اله وصحبه ومن استنى بسنتي ليوم الدين All praise due to Allah and may Allah's peace and blessings be on his last Prophet Muhammad sallallahu alayhi wa sallam and on all those who follow the path of righteousness until the last day. In today's khutbah, the Imam continued on last week's theme which had to do with death. Last week, he spoke about why people fear death when death is something which is inevitable and he basically encouraged us to reflect on death and to prepare ourselves for death because the main reason why we fear it is because we don't know what is to come however Allah has informed us what is to come and in this khutbah, basically he expanded on what is to come. If a person dies, he either meets one of two situations. Either one which is a terrible end, or one which is a beautiful and pleasurable end. It's either one or the other when a person dies so the Imam began by looking at the case of those who disbelieve in this life those who have rejected faith either openly or those who rejected in practice so this includes even those people who refer to themselves as Muslims may have Muslims written on their documents but in practice they are not Muslims because Islam is not a name it's not a title it is a way of life so all those who reject the way of life of Islam they will have a terrible end a terrible life in this life as well as in the next and he quoted the verse from the Quran in which Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala said فَمَنْ أَعْرَضَ عَنْ ذِكْرِي فَإِنَّ لَهُ مَعِيشَةً بَنْكَ that is whoever goes away from my remembrance who turns away from the remembrance of Allah will have a wretched life that wretched life may not be apparent to us we see people who are apparently disbelievers they have stated so but their life seems to be a pleasurable life the super rich who live what seems to be very comfortable lives wherever we are because the super rich are not just in America or here in Saudi Arabia or England, Europe, etc. The super rich are everywhere. They're there in Philippines. In spite of the low state of the economy in Philippines, you have people there who are super rich. Multimillionaires 
living in palaces. They're everywhere. And they seem to live a very pleasurable life. And everybody else wishes that they could have lives like their lives. However, when you actually go into their lives, what you find in there is wretchedness. They live wretched lives spiritually, psychologically. They're never satisfied with what they have. They're always worried about people trying to steal what they have. There is infighting that is going on constantly, turmoil within the family. It's not a pleasurable life. There are pleasures in it, just as there will be pleasures in the poorest person's life. A person who seems to have nothing, that person will still find pleasures within his life. However, the pleasure which a person finds within his life in spite of his economic state, which comes from contentment with Allah, belief in Allah which gives him a state of contentment where he can accept Allah's destiny and live in accordance. That contentment and peace of heart that he finds can never be bought. All the riches of the earth cannot buy it. So those people who appear to us so rich, living such pleasurable lives, in fact, as Allah has informed us, their lives are quite wretched. And from time to time, if you follow the newspapers, etc., when they are talking about the lives of certain people, you'll find some information is leaked out about the, the trials and the tribulations that they face within them, their families. But when they die, those who have turned away from the remembrance of Allah, when such die, it is even more terrible. The wretchedness of this life is nothing in comparison to the wretchedness of the next life. When that person dies, the soul is torn out of the body. It is torn out, a painful extraction. The angel of death draws that soul out of it. When the soul is coming out, it is something which is painful, torturous. Not an easy death. Now, again, we see people who may be the worst of creation. They seem to die easily. Hitler, according to what reports we have, he put a gun to his head, blew his head off, and there it was all over. And in spite of all that he did before. And others. The death seems to be quick and simple. Or somebody might even die, a disbeliever in front of you, you see them dying, maybe they die with, with, with what appears to be even a smile on their face. However, again, what we are talking about is something which is beyond our vision. This is why Allah, through the Qur'an, and through the statements of the Prophet ﷺ, informed us of these things, because these are things that we can't perceive. We are only seeing the physical, 
But we don't know what is going on on the spiritual plane. So what we're talking about here is what is happening to this person on a spiritual plane, in a plane which is beyond our vision. That person's soul is extracted in the most painful, imaginable manner. And when it is extracted, angels will take it up to the heavens. And those angels who extract it find it to be something which is so filthy and so stink that they can hardly, they hardly want to hold it. They carry it up to the heavens and the angels that they come across on the way all ask them, what is this terrible smelling evil soul smell? And they will say it is the soul of so and so. And it will be taken up to the first of the heavens, to the door which opens into the heavens, and the guardian will question again about this soul, what is it? And they will, the angels will report that this is the soul of so-and-so, and the doors will not open for that soul. And it will be cast back down to the earth. And the Imam quoted some verses from the Quran which, you know, refer to Allah describing disbelievers that they will fall from the sky, you know, like a, you know, with a, in a terrible fashion. This soul will fall back from the sky, be thrown down back into the body again. And at that point, two angels will come to it. Two very fearful angels known as Munkar and Nakir. And they will ask the soul, Who is your Lord? And the soul will answer, uh, I don't know. What is your religion? Will answer, uh, I don't know. And who is your prophet, the one who was sent to you? Will reply, uh, I don't know to be incapable of answering. Not that that individual did not in this life hear about the religion of Islam, the religion of Allah, or about the Prophet, or about Allah. That person may very well have heard all these things. However, at that time, they will be incapable of giving the right answer. And this is part of the degradation, the calamities which will be which befalls that person who dies from the time that the soul is extracted. It will know inside itself, but it cannot say. It is incapable of saying. And because it is incapable of, of saying, then things are getting worse and worse for it. But it cannot change that process which has begun. At that point, a command will be given that that soul should get for it, spread for it, a bedding of fire. 
and it will be dressed in fire and a door or window opening onto the hellfire will open and the scorching wind from that hellfire will be passing over that body that soul and it will stay in that state until the point of resurrection while it is in that state a filthy stinking evil figure will approach it and the soul will ask who are you? and it will say I am your evil deeds and at this point the disbelievers they will wish that they never existed that they were dust these who had everything of this life wishing they had more and the next will wish that they never even came into existence they will be surrounded when they are gathered for the judgment they will be in chains as a further means of degradation others will see them they will be raised up with the others and they will be chained up it's like a person who has been uh, judged to die you know what is coming and everything that you do is just bringing you a step closer to that point you are to be executed you committed murder and you know you're going to be killed every step every minute everything that you do now brings you closer and closer to that point so these people from the time of death you see they're going through a series of tortures a series of of circumstances which just further increase their state of grief and they will be thrown into hell after judgment after seeing what they have done in this life they know where they deserve to go but Allah will show them all that they did in this life to further increase that state of grief and in hell they will be increased in size we know that Adam according to what the Prophet informed us was a huge figure and those going into hell will be increased in size similarly or more so and in hell they will be burnt from the outside to the inside they will be burnt right up to their heart till the hearts are burnt when the hearts are burnt then they are reformed again and the process starts again so it's a continual process 
And because of the heat, the intense heat of the fire, they will be overcome by an intense thirst. And when it gets very hot, you feel thirsty. Naturally there, because the heat of the fire there is beyond our comprehension, something we, is unimaginable. Then the thirst that the person feels in that state becomes even beyond anything we could comprehend. But what they will get to drink is the worst that is imaginable. And of the drinks that they are given, it will cause their stomachs to burn, boil. It will boil in their stomachs and increase their thirst further to the point where they will go and drink fire. Fire which will appear like lakes. They will drink it to try to remove that thirst. But it's just increasing. Everything is just increasing. And they will feel through all this as if they are going to die, as if death is overcoming them from all sides. But they don't die. They go to a point which is almost like death, like they go out of existence. That whole process of dying, they go through it again. But then it starts all over again. So it's a continual torture that they face. And they will beg the angels to let them die. But the angels are commanded that they be where they are forever. And as I said, this is all information from the Qur'an and from the Sunnah informing us of things which are in fact beyond our comprehension. Allah uses words. The Prophet ﷺ used words. But these words are only to try to give us something of an idea. Just as if I tried to describe to you something you've never seen. Something you've never tasted. I can only give you something of an idea. But the realities, you can be sure, will be far greater. It will be far, far greater. On the other hand, those who do good based on righteous deeds, whether they are male or female, they will be given a good life. This is the promise of Allah. In both this life and the next, in accordance with what they have done. This is Allah's promise. This is why we said that the righteous, even though on the outside, they may appear to be in very difficult circumstances, poverty stricken, people may die in their families, disease, all these kind of things. On the outside they may appear to be having difficulties. However, on the inside, Allah gives them a certain state of contentment which allows them to handle all these circumstances. All the circumstances of this life. Experiencing a pleasure which comes from the faith in Allah which is something which cannot be described. 
Prophet talked about it as the sweetness of faith. Whoever tastes that, never go astray. When a person has understood, this is why when we hear about, for example, people being converted from Islam to Christianity, or Islam to communism, Islam to whatever, we can be certain these people didn't know what Islam was. Because when a person tastes the sweetness of faith, to go back to disbelief after having realized that faith would be like one to jump into a fire, knowing what is going to be that fire is going to be like. You know what what fire is like in this life. You stick your hand in, in the on the stove, you get such a burn, and for you to deliberately throw yourself into fire. You wouldn't. So those who are converted in this fashion, these are people who have not tasted the sweetness of faith. And this is all that we all should strive for. Strive to realize the sweetness of faith. To submit and to commit ourselves to Allah so that we feel inside of ourselves a contentment. We feel inside of ourselves a sense of reality, a sense of knowing what this life is about, which enables us to handle anything that we can be faced with in this life. We realize the promise of Allah that He does not burden any soul greater than it can bear. And whatever difficulties we are faced with, Allah will take us to a time of ease after it. And the difficulty only improves us. When the person tastes that reality of faith, then everything serves to increase his faith. The good and the evil, all of it increases that faith. When such a person dies, they are given glad tidings from the time of death. And the Imam quoted the verse, إِنَّ الَّذِينَ قَالُوا رَبُّنَ اللَّهِ ثُمَّ اسْتَقَامُوا تَتَنَزَّلُ عَلَيْهِمُ الْمَلَائِكَةِ That the, those who say that Allah is their Lord and do right, the angels come down on them. And Give them glad tidings of what is to come. Their soul will leave their bodies like water dropping from a water skin or like from a glass. Just pour it easily. No resistance. They will be, when the soul comes out, they will be wrapped in perfume from paradise. They will be taken up that soul and the sweetness of the smell will attract the angels. They will be asking, who is this? What is this beautiful smell? And they will, the, angel, and the angels were taking them up, taking up the soul, will say to so and so. And at the first heaven the doors will open. 
the angels will welcome them in welcome this beautiful perfumed sweet smelling soul and through all the heavens up to the seventh heaven that soul will rise and in the seventh heaven Allah will command that that soul's record be recorded in what is known as Eliyin the record of the righteous will be in paradise and then the soul will be taken gently back down to the body to continue the process to resurrection and there the angels will come to it again and ask as it asks the soul of the disbeliever who is your Lord what is your religion who is your prophet and of course that soul will have the right answers and it will be further given glad tidings and the command will be given for bedding from paradise to be spread out for it it will be clothed in the clothings from paradise and a window on paradise will be opened it will also be shown in hell a window on hell will be opened and they will see the place that would have been for them in hell had they not taken the righteous path and that is not any form of punishment but only to increase their happiness because when you see what would have happened to you and you know it's not going to happen to you of course it makes you feel that much happier and that window on paradise will be open and calm cool wind from it will be passing over that soul until the time of resurrection and at the time of resurrection that soul will be greeted by angels and it will come without fear the judgment will be easy some of those will not even be judged depending on the what they did in this life they are amongst the martyrs etc they will be heading straight to paradise and as Allah promised that soul will be protected from all evil on that day on that day of judgment which is something which all of us should reflect on how we are living and how we will stand up on that day when all of the deeds that we have done are laid out for us are we prepared let us not think that because we are Muslim because we have accepted Islam that we are guaranteed a place in paradise no we have to work we have to work for it we have to make our commitment real and the perfume of paradise is something described as being so strong so beautiful that it could be smelled from 50 years journey away we will be greeted those who are going to paradise inshallah we will be greeted 
Salamun alaikum. Peace be on you. And those entering paradise will enter it in a state of eternal youth. Tents of pearls will be for them. So wide that it is like that of 60 miles. This is something unimaginable for us. A pearl is a little thing that we know of. But in paradise there will be tents made out of pearls which will be hollowed in the inside. So wide so large that it will be like 60 miles and there will be trees fruits beyond our comprehension trees whose shade is so expansive that you could travel for a hundred years and still be under the shade trees which will have fruit some of which will have the names like the names that we know in this life is this life like grapes, pomegranates, etc. But the taste is like nothing of this life. There will be rivers passing under the earth of paradise, rivers of water, of honey, milk, and of wine, but not carrying any of the corruptive factors that exist in this life. The rivers will be pure. There will be nothing in it. No mixtures, nothing to uh, defile it. The honey will be pure, not mixed with anything else. The milk will be pure, will not go bad. The wine will be pure, it will not make us intoxicated. And the dress that we will wear will be with all of the best of this life, the gold, the silver, brocade, silk, etc., all the things that in this life Allah has commanded us to avoid, the gold and the silk, which in this life is prohibited to us, and that life is for us. In this life, these things have been prohibited so that we don't spend all of our efforts trying to gather around us things which we cannot take with us. The materials of this life. We try to deal with what is necessary. Whatever wealth we gather, we try to use it in a way which is going to benefit us in the next life. Not as a means of ostentation, showing ourselves to be better and etc. than those people around us. But using it, knowing that this is a gift from Allah. And we have a duty to use it in a way which is pleasing to Allah. So that we will earn from whatever we spend, reward from Allah in the next life. And those of paradise will be so happy. They will laugh at those in hell. As those in this life laugh at the believers. In this life, the disbelievers, they laugh at the believers. 
they scorn them, make fun of them. In the next life, the believers will have the last laugh. You know, as they say, he who laughs last, laughs best. And the Prophet had quoted Allah as saying that he, had, he prepares in paradise for his righteous servants what no eye has ever seen or any ear has heard or any mind has thought. So all that we are talking about, again as I said, are only terms to give us something of an idea. to encourage us to strive because it is beyond our comprehension. We don't really know what it is. But what we can be certain is that it is good. That's the bottom line. In this life, we like the good things and we don't like the evil things. We try to avoid the evil things and collect the good things. But we have to think. We have to think. In the next life, it's the same thing. Except, it's not a question of collecting and avoiding anymore. It's a question of receiving. You receive good in the next life, which you like in this life, if you have done good in this life. But doing good may involve doing some things we don't like. In fact, it may be involving many things we don't like. And avoiding evil may involve many things that we like, which are pleasurable. So that's why we have to think in this life what we are doing. Not just what is good and pleasurable to us, we do and we avoid what is good and what is evil and unpleasant what appears to us to be unpleasant it is not as simple as that what is good is what Allah has defined as good what Allah and his messenger the messengers of Allah came to convey to us the realities of good in this life and to explain to us the realities of evil in this life. So we have to follow that explanation. We have to follow the, those clarifications. And choose what is pleasing to Allah. Not necessarily what is pleasing to us. If it is pleasing to us and pleasing to Allah, alhamdulillah. But if it's pleasing to Allah and displeasing to us, we still have to choose it. If we are to be blessed with the good of the next life. So we have to use our intelligence, our intellect. We have to know what it is Allah wants from us. We have to understand the religion. Not enough to say, I'm a Muslim and I do what everybody else does. No. We have to understand what it is, what this religion is. 
so that we can do what Allah requires of us. So we must seek knowledge. This is why Prophet Muhammad told us that the seeking of knowledge is compulsory for every Muslim. Because if we don't seek knowledge, we won't know what it is Allah wants from us. So we must learn the religion properly. Be very anxious. Just like somebody tells you, listen, I have a job for you. If you learn this or learn that, learn how to do this, I've got a very good job for you, it's paying 10,000, 15,000 riyals a month. You're going to go to the first store you can and buy that book and start studying this thing. You're going to be very you know, anxious to try to get this job. You know, that's real. But you are so anxious to do it, for something which you cannot take with you. Yet, when somebody says, read about Islam, study the religion, you can't find time to do it. Well, I'm working, my work hours, too long, when I get home I'm tired. I need to wash my clothes, I need to get some sleep so I can get up in the next morning. So, days, months, years go by. And your knowledge of Islam is not increasing. So what happens? It means that you end up doing many things which are displeasing to Allah. Many things. So though you think that you have become a Muslim or that you are a Muslim and you are going to paradise because you are doing some good things, you are also doing so many other evil things that these will override the good and cause you to go to hell. So the same way that you will be so concerned, so anxious, to know what is going to improve the quality of your life in this life, you should be even more anxious to know what is going to give you a better life in the next, which will be an everlasting life. This is faith, real faith, which affects our actions. When the doctor tells you, Take this medicine. It's nasty. You know it. Certain medicines that taste very nasty. But the doctor tells you, take this medicine, it's going to get you better. Though your desire is against it, you know, maybe it makes you feel like you want to vomit. Horrible smelling, horrible tasting. But your intellect, your intelligence tells you that you have to take this because you want to get better. So you go ahead and you take it. Because you have faith in that doctor and in that medicine that it is going to get you better. But what about faith in Allah? And the medicine, Islam. If we don't do 
if we don't take Islam completely and do everything that we can then we really don't have faith in Allah we know about Allah somebody asks you who is the God this is Allah you can say it but it's not faith it's knowledge it only becomes faith when the person accepts Islam wholeheartedly all of Islam so this is what is in front of us either one or the other either a life of pleasure in this life externally with wretchedness internally or a life which involves difficulties externally but contentment internally leading to either hell with all of the torturous steps to it or leading to paradise with all of the pleasurable steps to it this is what is in front of us and we have to choose accepting Islam is the beginning of the step to paradise so inshallah I hope that we all Allah would give us the great blessing of accepting Islam sincerely from our hearts and give us the reward for living in accordance with Islam the reward of paradise in the next life and the Imam before closing the khutbah spoke of the trials that Muslims are facing in Bosnia and Somalia in Bosnia where they are being slaughtered in Somalia where they are starving to death Muslim peoples who are facing terrible calamities in this life who by Allah's destiny are facing these calamities while Allah's destiny has put us in a situation where we are living comfortably relatively comfortably we have to reflect we have to give thanks to Allah for what He has given us not by merely saying Alhamdulillah and carrying on but by sharing what we have with those who Allah has destined not to have our Muslim brothers and sisters who are dying are in need of our help and none of us should let any opportunity go by to give something of what we have to them there are funds 
collected, well today it was collected at the end of the khutbah, you know, at the end of the salah, by the doors, of course there's nobody there now, but we know wherever we go in the city, we will see boxes collecting money for Bosnia or for Somalia or Muslims in some needy place. We should always try to give something. No matter how small, whatever we can afford, we should try to always give something. And in doing that, that's how we give thanks practically. That's how we give thanks to Allah, practically. So that covers basically the information conveyed in the khutbah. Uh, is there any points that anybody would like to add from the khutbah? Those brothers amongst us who uh, understand Arabic and heard the khutbah, if there is something which I missed, which you would like to uh, add further information for our brothers or sisters who don't or are not able to understand the Arabic. If not, any uh, questions anybody would like to raise concerning the topic of the khutbah? Could you, um, could you instruct us how to answer those people who say that God makes people evil, He decrees that they do evil, and then punishes them for it. This is an unfair system. Sometimes the atheists put forward this argument. Do you Yeah. Uh, a brother was uh, asking how we may answer. Uh, a brother was uh, asking how we may answer those who say that Allah has created the evil person evil and then punished him which indicates injustice and unfairness however Allah did not create man evil he created man with the ability to choose good or evil and gave him the ability to implement his choice if Allah so wished. When the person chooses to do evil, he is punished for his choice. This is why the Prophet has said that deeds are judged by their intentions. When a person chooses, he is punished for his choice, what his intent was. Not necessarily the product of the action, because you may choose to do something good, and your action may turn out to be evil to somebody. Or you may choose to do evil, and your action may turn out to be good to other people. So, Allah judges you ultimately according to the choice, your intent that you made. And He in His bounty and His grace will also multiply the good that you get for that good choice by rewarding you also for the product of your choice, which is by His destiny.
Any other questions? Our brothers involved in Dawah, you know, our brothers um, also, you know, who have recently come into Islam. If you have any questions, this is a chance. Don't feel that your question is maybe, you know, too simple or whatever. If there's anything on your mind, you know, you have anything that you has not been clear. Somebody's explained it's not clear to you, or you've been reading and you just just don't quite understand. Please feel free now to ask. A question. It was asked by a child if we will be old or young in paradise. Can you give an explanation of the age or something that would clarify this question? Well, you know, as the Imam mentioned in the khutbah and as the Prophet ﷺ informed us, that people in paradise will be at the height of their youth. They will not be old. Now, in fact, this came on a circumstance where an old woman had come to the Prophet ﷺ and um, had asked her whether, you know, uh, asked him, sorry, whether uh, she would uh, enter paradise, something that effect. And he had told her, no, no, no old women will be going into paradise. And she turned away with tears coming to her eyes, but, you know, it was a joke he was making, you know, with her. He called her back and told her, no, you will enter, you know, at the height of your youth. Not that because you're old you'll never go into paradise, but no, Allah, those who go into paradise will be at the height of their youth. No matter what state they died in this life, you know, they will be at the height and perfection. I mean, if you're born with with uh, only one foot or you're born without arms or whatever it doesn't mean in paradise you're going to be there without arms no you will be perfect you will be entering perfection paradise and you will be perfectly suited for that paradise you will not grow old women will not bear children there are no toilets because there will be nothing to go in them I mean this is a whole different uh, existence altogether. Uh, I read in the translation of the Salihin that it was the Mirage, the Mirage, the saw Ibrahim with children in paradise. Do you recall this? Does this mean that some people as children in paradise? Uh, our brother uh, mentioned reading in Riyadh Salihin that uh, when Prophet ﷺ went on the Mi'raj uh, when he was uh, really Isra, Mi'raj, when he was taken up into the heavens and he came across Prophet Abraham and he saw with him children. So he was asking whether this means that there will be children in paradise. Um, I cannot uh, say that there, you know, will or there won't. You know, Prophet uh, Sallam had mentioned in terms, in the general terms, that people would be at the height of their youth. Uh, whether there would also be uh, some children for one reason or another. And what? Prophet Muhammad saw in uh, Mi'raj 
is what Allah showed him. And it may not necessarily be a permanent situation, but just something of what may exist for a period of time. For example, we also know that the martyrs, Prophet informed us that the martyrs, that they would go into paradise directly and would be green birds flying around in paradise. But this doesn't mean that they will remain as green birds flying around in paradise forever. This is a particular period or point. Anyway, you know, this is an area that uh, our knowledge is very limited. And uh, ultimately, all we can say is Allah knows best. Uh, our brother's question um, we know about those who are going to paradise and have done good in this life and you know receive in the state of the grave in the interim period before the resurrection they receive a pleasurable uh, existence as was described and those going to hell similarly receive an, a tormentous existence now question of our brother is what of those people who are believers however their faith was not enough to make them do enough righteous deeds to guarantee them straight to paradise they are in fact going to hell and the Prophet ﷺ had described such people that there were people, people who would go to hell and if a person has in his heart a mustard seed's worth of faith true faith then he will eventually come out of paradise sorry, come out of hell and that may be after a long period of time and in fact the last who were taken out Prophet ﷺ described them as being burned to a crisp and they will come into paradise and they will be known as the Jahannamiyun you know but they will make it to paradise what are such people in the state of the grave well this was not explained by the Prophet Muhammad so we cannot really say you know with clear authority uh, what would be their state except that they are going to hell and hell is a punishment that they are to receive right which they are heading for logically if we can use logic here that process which is taking them to hell, I mean because the inter interim period when a person dies, it's like the process heading for his resurrection into the end where he's going to meet. That, that process 
would, it would seem to make sense that he would also be in the grave also tormented. And especially when we consider some statements of Prophet concerning some people who would be tormented in the grave because they didn't protect themselves from their urine. Right? Not because they were disbelievers, but because they did not take care and protect themselves from the urine. And also, well, there were two cases, right? There were two graves. What was the third, second one? Remember he passed by the graves of some people and he... Huh? Oh, person, uh, you know, spreading rumors, you know, that they would be tor tormented in the grave for that. So, these people may have also been believers. They were being tormented, not necessarily for a big thing, big evil that they had done, but for some smaller evils which had piled up on them. You know? So, it does lend credence to the thought that perhaps that person also would receive the punishment of the grave, carrying them into hell, but in the end it is the mercy of Allah, the grace of Allah, which takes him out of that situation and carries him to paradise. Alaykum salam our brother's question based on the um, the Quranic uh, command not to be extravagant what should be the lifestyle of the believer it should be one in which you are not extravagant but of course Extravagance may vary depending on your own economic status. See, what might be extravagant for you, you know, with a salary of 1,000 riyals a month, would not be considered extravagant for somebody who has a salary of 10,000 riyals a month. Okay? So, extravagance can be a relative thing. But ultimately what it is, is where you squander your wealth, where you waste your money, your wealth, on things which are of no benefit to you in the next life. This is really the bottom line of extravagance. Where There are people in need and you waste. You know? After gatherings here, for example, weddings, you will see people coming out with huge trays of rice and meat and dumping it into the garbage. This is extravagant. When there are people starving in Somalia, that rice which is thrown in the garbage here, this is a sin. This is a sin. Because those people are starving because that rice is being thrown here. Because that rice which should have gone there is not going there, those people are starving.
the extravagance might be for you to buy four pairs of shoes and you can only wear one. Ten shirts and you can only wear five. You know, all of these is an extravagance can take many, many different forms. But basically it is wasting. And this is what Satan commands. What Satan encourages us. What Satan makes seem seemingly, you know, beautiful to us. To be in style. This is one of the ways in which Satan draws us into extravagance. The new style comes out this year, you got to buy this new style. You want to be hip. You want to be, you know, looking chic. This is extravagance. Because the clothes you wore last year, they didn't, they're not torn up, they're not damaged or anything, they're just out of style. See, this is not the way of the believer. What about the money spent on holidays overseas? Money spent on holidays overseas. Or, or on vacation. On vacation. Well, ultimately, as we spoke about a long time ago, a Muslim doesn't have any vacations and he doesn't have any holidays he may travel and Allah has told us to travel in the earth but he still continues to do what Allah requires of him wherever he goes he is conveying the message of Islam to the people around him <laughs> and he doesn't I mean if he is spending money to go see the Taj Mahal and the Eiffel Tower yes it's extravagant because to go traveling for these purposes this is extravagant but wherever he travels whatever he, he does with his spare time it should be things which are pleasing to Allah if what he does is pleasing to Allah, then he is not extravagant. But the idea of vacation and holiday, this is a Western concept. Where work is slavery, like slavery, you know, and you must have a break. You have a break. Because even the idea of a weekend, you know, the, the, the weekend, after you work people like slaves, you have to give them a day to re recuperate so they can work again for another week like slaves, right? And this is that, this is a Western capitalist, you know, feudalistic concept. Actually, in Islam, there is no weekend. When the call for prayer of Juma comes, we're supposed to stop work and go pray. After that, go back out. Get the bounties of Allah. It's not a holiday. Muslims, in the past, there is no weekend. Whether you're studying, whether you're working, it's just a continual thing. You don't work the people who work for you like slaves, where you just give them stuff which is so heavy for them, they can hardly handle it, they must have two days of break. No, you work, give them work which is moderate. They can continue working. Production continues. 
This was the way of the past, Muslims of the past. Inshallah, we hope to find our way back there again. Uh, question, uh, brother, is it unacceptable for a Muslim to strive to be wealthy? And if it is acceptable, then how does the person balance between extravagance and fulfilling his duty to Allah? Well, Islam teaches us that whatever is in this life has been given by Allah to us for our benefit. For us to gather it and benefit from it, if it involves us getting rich, there is no harm. However, whatever we gather, we have to fulfill the rights of others in it for it to be halal for us. For us to receive reward from it, we have to do our duty to Allah in it. So, if we are rich, then we have more to pay in zakah and we have more charity to give. You see, what happens is that being rich is not something sinful. Islam does not discourage people from being rich. It encourages. Work. Use your energies. Benefit from the things of this life. Muslims of the past, in the time of Prophet they were rich Muslims. But how did they live? The fact that they were rich didn't mean that, you know, they then went out and bought Rolls Royces and, you know, you know uh, private jets and, you know, they just no. They used the wealth which Allah gave them for the benefit of the society. For themselves and for the society. So a person may be rich, for example, in any given country. What he does is that he puts his money into the society. He invests it into businesses because there's so many people who would like to work, like to start business, but they have no capital. So he provides the capital for them. It will increase his wealth. So he gets richer. But the thing is that Allah blesses his wealth because he is using it for the benefit of people. Benefit of himself and for the benefit of people. So, he may live a very comfortable life, he may you know, have riches, but his, but his wealth is a source of increase in good deeds for himself. But it's the hoarding. You see, this is what becomes condemned. When the person makes those riches and he just keeps it all to himself, he hoards it, he spends it only on himself. On himself and his family, nothing goes out. The society doesn't benefit. That society had to strive, had to put efforts to produce that wealth. If he does not put it back into the society, then he is depriving them of the benefit of the efforts that they made. So he's cheating them, in that sense. He's cheating the rest of the society. And that's why he becomes sinful. And that's why the wealth becomes then a curse for him. And you'll find such people who have this kind of attitude, they won't pay their zakat. Or they'll find different ways of, you know, 
cheating and, you know, they think they're cheating the zakat system, but they're not cheating Allah, they're only cheating themselves. Like what? Well, our brother, expanding on the original thought, uh, pointed out that, you know, the world, generally speaking, is divided into the haves and the have-nots. And would it be fair to say, then, that the industrialized first world G7 countries, which are living very comfortable material lives, based on the raw materials that they're taking from the third world, the underdeveloped, would it be fair to say that they are cheating them because they do not put their wealth back into the society? Yes, of course. What happens in these societies in America, for example? You have caverns underground in America. They have where the water or whatever has eaten away and produced huge caverns underground where they will store Tons and tons of butter and dried milk. Tons of it sitting in there. Every year just adding more and more and more and more. This is taken out of circulation to keep the price of butter and milk high. Every year millions of little chickens, when they're first born, the chicks, millions are killed every year to keep the price of chickens that are grown high on the market. So, there's so much produce which is, is being made there in that, that country, but so much of it is destroyed deliberately, stored away in order to artificially keep prices high. Now, that produce is possible because of raw materials which are taken from the underdeveloped countries. So, in spite of whatever political factors may develop in these underdeveloped countries and we find, you know, famines, etc. coming about, the real cause is not the political. The real cause is the absence of circulation of wealth. It's like, you know, places like India, for example, or any other country of the third world. What you generally find is that People are not poor because there's a lack of resources. You know, I compare, for example, Philippines and Hong Kong. Philippines has no end of resources. People, physical resources as well as, you know, uh, natural resources. However, the level of the economy is extremely low. Why? Because of the means of distribution of the wealth in the society. Hong Kong, which has no resources. There's no greenery there. Every square inch of, of land has got buildings going up 30, 40, 50 stories high. Yet, 
the quality of life there is a thousand times better than the quality of life in the Philippines. And they have population somewhat similar to the Philippines. They're importing all. However, they have organized their uh, system in such a way that the society is able to benefit more from the wealth which is produced. You know. And this is the general situation. You have super poor in America also. See, because again, though in general, they will tell you that one American eats in one day the equivalent of 25 people elsewhere in Africa or Asia. One American will eat in a day the equivalent of what 25 people eat elsewhere in the world. They are consuming, you know, something like a quarter of the world's resources. Huge amount. However, in spite of all that, you have some people, some over a million people who live in the streets, have no home, living like the worst that you see, you know, you see in every country, especially other developed countries, places living, people living in shanties and eating out of the garbage. You've got them in America, eating out of the garbage. Maybe better pickings in America, but still they're eating out of the garbage. Living in the streets, dying in the streets. At the same time, they mentioned uh, that they spent $25 million to improve the toilet on the shuttle, space shuttle that uh, went up, you know, the two ago. They made some improvements. $25 million. And there are people eating from the garbage. You see, this again is ill distribution of wealth. And it's simple. As Muslim society, we have a responsibility. We have a responsibility within our society to circulate that wealth. This is what zakah is. It is forced circulation. It forces you. You must put some of it back. And who is it going to? The poor. Allah defines those people who the money should go back to. So you can see this is forced circulation of the wealth. And then on top of that, there is the encouragement to sadaqah. For so many different, you know, things that people, you do if you commit certain sins, you know, there, the, the atonement for the sins is sadaqah. You know? So, we see that the encouragement in the society in general, in Islamic society, is that of circulation of wealth. Encouragement of businesses, putting your wealth back into the society to benefit the society. Not that you can't become rich or the society shouldn't become rich, but that it should use that wealth for the benefit of man. Mankind. So what can we Our brother's question, what can we then as Muslims do to enlighten the uh, Western countries to their responsibility to distribute their wealth uh, equitably in the rest of the world? Well, I would say as Muslims, we first have to get our own Muslims to start distributing equitably 
You know, after we have done that, as a practical example, I think we can show them to the West. But we have to start with ourselves, because we are, as Muslims, suffering all over the Muslim world, because of this, you know, on one hand, it's not this is the only factor, of course, it's a big factor which has to do with faith. I mean, because of the loss of faith in the Muslim world, the fear of this life, fear of death, instead of fear of Allah, and, and, and submitting to Allah, that faith has been lost to so much of the Muslim world, and it's led to many of the calamities, but uh, part of the product is that we don't have that consciousness of responsibility, that we will be accountable to Allah, and so therefore we don't distribute our own wealth. So you find amongst the Muslims the super rich and the super poor. So until we can take care of ourselves, it would be very foolish for us to stand up and start to tell the West, well, no, listen, you should be sharing your... They can point like, well, what about you? You know? So this is what, this is our duty, is to start with ourselves. You know, wherever we are as Muslims, we have a duty to ed- educate uh, Muslims to that responsibility, responsibility to, to Allah, responsibility to mankind. And where it is necessary, we have to make people comply with the law of Allah. Correct. And this happens all over the world, continually, every day. 
If they encourage and be employed by their words someone else to kill an innocent Muslim or someone who, you know, they may not agree with, they may not like. Would the person who spreads the word, or who puts these words up, would his punishment with the law be equal to the punishment of the one who pulls the trigger or, or, or thrusts the knife? That's my question. Well, you, you always come with these dimmies, right? Uh, <laughs> uh, the um, first point that the brother raised, which uh, should also be mentioned for those who couldn't hear him, that uh, Muslims are encouraged in the spending, those who have money in spending, uh, not only in uh, putting their monies into other businesses and helping other Muslims in that way, they're also encouraged in doing public works, doing uh, projects, different projects in any given society, wherein Muslims or people will benefit from, or animals or whatever, you know. It could be uh, making a sanctuary for certain animals, you know, or it could be, uh, you know, digging a well, providing a well that people will benefit from, or that animals in an area will be able to benefit from because the water is scarce or whatever. You know, whatever public works that he does, uh, that uh, man or, or animal benefits from, then this is also a way by which he may gain further reward from the wealth that he has in spending. The other point that the uh, brother was questioning, actually it involves the question whether a Muslim who murders another Muslim intentionally, who has been promised hell, by Allah, whether that in fact is not a greater sin than to commit shirk, which most people understand to be the greatest of sins. No, killing another Muslim is not a greater sin than shirk. Shirk is the greatest sin, because Allah has stated that he forgives, can forgive, whatever is not shirk. Whatever is beyond shirk, he can forgive. So that even though he says that the punishment of a believer, of a Muslim, for killing another Muslim is hell, intentionally, that is the general punishment, but he can still forgive that Muslim. He can still forgive, because this is a general ruling he has given. He has already explained in the verse on shirk that he can forgive anything which is not shirk. So this is clarification for that general punishment. It's just like saying, for example, the general punishment for stealing is cutting your hand off. However, if some circumstances arise, it's a time of, of uh, uh, famine, if you steal at that time, they will not cut your hand up. If your boss was not paying you your money, your salary, and you stole from him, they would not cut your hand up. So though the general ruling is cutting off the hand, there are circumstances where exceptions can be taken out of it. 
Though the general ruling for a Muslim who kills another Muslim is hell, Allah may forgive that Muslim and put him in paradise due to other factors. No, brother, there are many, many examples. Many, many examples. You know, when Usama ibn Zayd killed a man who declared his faith, who became a Muslim, when he killed him, he killed him deliberately. Because of an understanding that he had. The Prophet did not say that he is going to help. He told him he's wrong for what he did. Because he didn't know what is in that man's heart. But nobody has the idea that Usama ibn Zayd, favorite uh, companion of the Prophet is going to help. No way. You know? And we had people involved, you know, in struggles of the past where Muslims were ended, ended up fighting other Muslims. And in fact, there is a circumstance where um, the Prophet was asked about the armies which would be sent from the north to fight against the Mahdi when the earth would swallow them up. These people who were then who had been who were sent to fight against a Muslim leader who was to come, Prophet was asked by the companions, "What of these people? You know, uh, Prophet said they would be raised on the day of judgment according to their intention. So if a person has been given false information, for example, and this is what you will find, you know, happens where some Muslims end up killing other Muslims, that they've been given false information that this Muslim is a so and so." You know, he's an evil so-and-so. And the person, based on that false information, kills another Muslim. So, of course, Allah is going to judge that person based on the knowledge that the person has. It doesn't mean that he has a guaranteed ticket to hell now. It depends on really what, what his intention was. The person who is killing now, who is Muslim, really only Muslim in name, he is killing out of hatred of Islam, of course, that person is headed to hell. I don't believe also in the day of judgment. So they encourage the power to do good things and to avoid also bad things. Now my question is, those people that are type of Muslims who are doing good things, well, uh, brother's question that there are other religions who speak of judgment and responsibility and encourage their followers to do good and avoid evil. Will these other religions, people followers of these other religions, not also be rewarded? Allah has promised that. The reward of good is good. Whatever good is done, there will be a good reward for it. If a person had a good intention. However, the greatest evil that one can do is to worship others besides Allah or along with Allah. So that greatest evil 
will stop that person from going to paradise. However, the good that they did in this life, with good intention, would give them a state in hell which is not as bad as those who didn't do what they did. Because just as in paradise there are levels, in hell there are also levels. Prophet Muhammad spoke, yeah, going down. Uh, the Prophet Muhammad spoke of Abu Talib, one who did so much good for the Prophet Muhammad for the Muslims, but who died in a state of disbelief, who did not declare his faith, that he would be in hell, but the hell would only catch his feet. But even so, it is enough to make his brains boil. But obviously his situation is not like those who are fuel for the fire. The hypocrites, etc. Munafiqeen. So, the person will receive their just view. Because Allah is most wise, most just. But it will not be paradise. Because the key to paradise is Tawheed. And the righteous deeds that come from it. situations where the water supply is not a steady supply, where it may cut off at the time of prayer and your person, person may have to go and use the bathroom, he's not able to wash himself after using the bathroom, so uh, such a person, can that person go and pray? I mean, what is the, the greater sin involved here? Is it better for him to pray having not washed himself or to wait until the water comes back and miss the time of prayer, you know, what should he, the person do? This is basically the question. Okay. Now, we have a principle, one, that the cleaning of oneself does not necessarily have to be with water. See, this is the first misunderstanding that you have. That if you did not use water in cleaning yourself, that you're not clean. This is a misunderstanding. Because the use of water is a part of the cleaning process. The best cleaning process is to use dry materials.